Welcome to the audio podcast for Beit Abba, the Messianic Jewish ministry at the Father's House. We exist to proclaim the gospel to the Jewish people and to connect Christians to Israel and the Jewish roots of our faith. Thank you. Good evening. Shabbat Shalom. Erev Tov. I read a funny piece of news today. Kathy and I had a great time laughing at it. So in Japan, the train arrived 20 seconds late at the station, and they had to compensate and um, uh, apologize to the public. And so all of this is to say, um, I was asked to condense a message of an hour and a half or two hours into 40 minutes. Now how much time do I have? I still have 40 minutes. I'm not going to apologize to the public. Okay. So the train takes off. Um, yeah, my name is Orna, and the name of the ministry, as Kathy shared with you, is Ot Umofet, and it means a sign and a sign and an example. I'll tell you later why. Um, I was. It was a little after my army service that God did with me what he does to a lot of Israeli young kids. He kind of, well, we don't even think it's God at that point, but we just want to travel the world. And I ended up in South Africa. As far as I could think, I could go away from responsibility, life or death issues. And I met a Gentile family there, and they invited me um, to their home. So I, I, I walked in a total atheist, and I was really impressed with something in their lifestyle that spoke volumes to me. Um, and the main thing was the fact that they have a relationship with God. So, okay, God exists, that's one thing I know I, knew I had to maybe deal with. But just that they have a relationship with the God I don't even think exists was really fascinating. And uh, it's not just because they told me, but I could see it. They spoke to him, he answered, they presented questions, and they got um, directions, and it, it, just, it just tore apart my little world into pieces. And a couple of weeks later, I just remember walking, hiking that hill, I didn't even care to journal back then, um, thinking, yeah, there is God. He exists. So faith was birthed in me through hearing them and seeing. More than hearing, it was seeing their lifestyle. They definitely provoke jealousy in me, just like Paul tells in Romans. And so I told them that, and um, they said, okay, so now that you know God exists, why don't you ask him if Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah? <laughs> I couldn't care less whether he is the Jewish Messiah or not. But, you know, they brought me into their home. They don't even know me. I'll do it for them. So I kind of mimicked what I saw them do earlier when they had a big question they needed an answer for. And I said, okay, I'll give God three days. And I will ask that question. And we'll see. So, and they found for me these huge Hebrew old Bibles, huge letters, so it needed two volumes of the Old Testament and another little New Testament. And every time I would say, okay, God, you know, is Yeshua, I didn't even call him by the right name because I didn't even know it's Yeshua. Is he the Jewish Messiah? And um, I'm not going to tell you the answer. <laughs> You'll have to guess it. Um, see, I have to cut on time. 
Sorry, I just need to move a little forward. <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, my point is God used Gentiles to awaken something in me. And he had to remove me and separate me from anything that was a part of my comfort zone. I traveled to South Africa to begin with because I had friends living there. But soon after I arrived, they had to leave to another country and I didn't want to go there. And that's when I was invited by this family that seemed odd, you know, all the talks about salvation and words, I wasn't even sure how do you translate them. Every time I translated it into Hebrew, it sounds like a lifeguard on the beach. And they kept talking about this guy who's doing the job of a lifeguard on the beach. That was my understanding of salvation back then. But they provided a roof for free. I was, you know, a soldier, just, I, I was on a low budget. So I just took advantage of that. And God knew where to push me to which corner to awaken something so ancient that was buried deep inside me and my family. After I arrived back home, a few years later, God told, called me, um, my profession is publishing, and I had that running for almost 20 years until God called me to take care of the broken, the needy, the widows, and the orphans. It was very odd at that point, because I myself am a single mom, and, um, and I was in the midst, this, the peak of my brokenness and my son's devastation, and I didn't even think I have anything to give them. But then God started taking me. He gave me the calling, then he started healing me and equipped me with tools that we use until today in our ministry in healing because the work we do is not so much humanitarian. It's really equipping people with what they need in order to walk what we call walk through the tabernacle. We have a half-scale model of the tabernacle of Moses back home and we teach people to take their thorns and walk from the gate all the way to the Holy of Holies and see how God's glory takes over their brokenness. It's my lifestyle, it's very powerful. I love doing that. Uh, I've been doing it already here twice. I just finished my second seminar in the States. And that's what I offer to the people that God brings my way, mostly in Israel. And as I do this ministry, I, 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 I learn what is a brokenness of a nation. How does that look like? Because it took me a while to realize that God has not only called me to broken people, he has called me to do something very specific with a broken nation. And Israel is broken. Israel is a widow. There are, there are a couple of important terms I want to establish with you tonight. For you to understand where are we standing in God's timeline and what is your part in it. Israel is a widow because she's broken, because spiritually she doesn't know she's got someone to lean on, because she does have a husband, but she doesn't acknowledge him as such. The majority of Israelis are secular Jews, and we don't even think he exists. And even if we do, he is remote, he's way over there, he's uninvolved. 
Um, Israel is a widow. This is the definition of the Bible. We think today a widow is a woman whose husband died. But the biblical definition is much broader than that. And God promises in Isaiah 54, 4, that the day will come when she will not remember the reproach of her widowhood anymore. She's a widow not because she doesn't have a husband, but because she doesn't lean on him and acknowledge him. Um, and at this point, I want to introduce another important term called hidden faces. Faces in plural. It's plural in Hebrew, not singular. Because as of now, Israel's husband is hiding major parts of his personality, major faces. I, I, I usually hold this bowl, and later you can look at it closely, and it has lots of little triangles. It's like a big diamond, okay? And God has many sides to his personality, just like us. And many sides of that are hidden from the, from the Jewish nation. Um, the rabbis divide the history of Israel to three major eras, periods, okay? So the first one um, is from creation all the way to Malachi, the last prophet. This is the first period. The third one, they call it the Messianic Age, and that will start when the Messiah will show up until eternity. In between, we have what is called the era of hidden faces. They say that God is hiding his faces from the people. He is uninvolved, which is why they take it upon themselves to be the people who are um, um, overlooking the nation. And that since Malachi, this is the teaching, a voice is not heard from heaven anymore. The point is that this is not just a rabbinical term. It is a biblical term, and it's very important that you will understand it. It's hidden from English readers of the Bible because it's mistranslated. And we'll get there. I'll just show you a few examples. I, again, I'm condensing here a very long teaching. It's a you know, I'm more a teacher. I'm not exactly a preacher, and I like to dig and dig deep. And, 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 and you have to kind of go systematic to establish this point. But I just throw a few points for you to realize where I'm coming from. Um, um, let me just ask you a question. Who brought Israel out of Egypt? God did, and there was an Moses. Okay. Let's look at... Um, Exodus 33, 2-3. We won't go through many verses, but I, I have, you have to look at that in your word. Exodus 33 is just after the story of the golden calf. Okay, God is so angry with the people. And he says to Moses in verse 2, I will send my angel before you, it's a capital A, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the whole list, okay, of those nations. Verse three, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So what God is saying here is, I am not going 
I will send an angel. This is not the first time there is reference to this angel. It starts earlier, you know, when there is the, uh, the, the, the um, pillar of smoke and fire that separates Israel from the Egyptians that were pursuing them. If you read carefully, you see it's an angel that walks before them, not God. Is it God? Let's see. Moses understands what God says to him here in chapter 33, but he's not willing to do the work all alone. He wants to know who that angel is. So in verse 12, he says to God, see, you say to me, bring up these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And so God says to him in verse 14, this is a key verse. He says to him, my presence, this is what your Bible say, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. The word presence is non-existent in the original Hebrew Old Testament. Never, ever. Every time you see presence, it's faces. It's all of God's personality. All the aspects. That's what he says. My faith, it's very weird. It's really Makes no sense to the human mind, but that's what God says. My faces will go with you, and I will give you rest, or it's a play word there, I will instruct you. Now Moses, who has seen God face to face, faces to faces in the past, settles with that. It's enough for him. I want to go a little uh, backwards to Exodus 23. God prophesies here to uh, Moses and tells him what's going to happen. No, sorry. He tells him how he wants the people to relate to this angel. Exodus 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him. Now, let's stop for a second on that word provoke because it is another key word in the story. That one was really nervous. The word translated here to provoke, it is the, the Hebrew uh, this is the Hebrew root. You can write it this way or that way. Or in English, it would be MRR. You know, every word, every noun and verb in Hebrew has three letters root. So you can translate it into provoke, but it also, a, a, a Jewish, a Hebrew mind sees it and he knows it includes also bitterness and um, rebellion. Do not rebel, yeah. So really, what God is saying here, see this angel, don't provoke him, don't be bitter towards him, don't rebel against him. Um, verse 21, he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him, but if you indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land. And again, this angel. And once you get 
uh, you, you get sensitive to his presence, you'll see him everywhere in the story. He's there. He's there in many other occurrences too. Um, so it's an, he is an angel, and again, I'm kind of cutting into the verses that speak about him. He is the angel, but he is the Messiah. He is an angel. Why? He, he, he's called in different names. Sometimes he is an angel. Sometimes he is an angel of Jehovah. Sometimes he is an, he's the angel of God. Sometimes he is the angel of the faces. Um, and so from one um, mention to the other, you learn something new about him. And he is, he is present in many uh, stories in the Old Testament, but somehow in most of them he's covered either by night. Remember Jacob wrestling with a being at Peniel? Peniel, faces of God, that's the meaning of the name. Uh, uh, so the, that was in the middle of the night, or there was a smoke, or cloud, or, 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 or fire. So he is there, but he is covered, and he's not that clear. What's interesting about him is that all the other um, divine, angelic beings, they can look probably at all of God's, at everything about God besides maybe his holiness or glory. We're not clear about it, but the fact is that the seraphim in Isaiah 6, they had to, the glory was filling the earth, and they had to cover their eyes. And then if we recall the cherubim on the ark, their position is such that they cannot look up to the glory that covered that spot. But there is this only one who can say, if you saw me, you see him. And I am the father of one. And, and um, um, if you had known me, you would have known him. And he, and, and I like it that when Yeshua, many times when he prays, he climbs, he climbs up a hill around the, the Sea of Galilee and he lifts up his eyes to heaven and they probably open up before him. And he just prays, you know, versus us, usually lower our heads, close our eyes and uh, to be filled with awe and concentrate on ourselves. So there is something with this angel that points to the Messiah and he is probably the Messiah hidden in that story. Another very important uh, reference to him is in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 31. 15 to 16, this is the prophecy I started talking about a few minutes ago. God says to Moses, what's going to happen once the nation goes into the land? He says to him, they will play harlots with the gods of the land. And then, Deuteronomy 31, 15, no, 16. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and these people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my faces, plural, okay? From them. And now that you see that, now that you understand that the faces is a being, it's not just God turning his back. It's a part of God that sees all of God and knows everything about God and is almost one with him. What God is saying here is, I will hide him from the nation. 
I will hide my faces from them and they shall be devoured and many evils and troubles shall befall them so that they will say that they have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, which is what everybody says in Israel, which is why the rabbis take it upon themselves to oversee the nation, which is why they say this is the era of hidden faces. And I will surely hide my faces in that day because of all the evil which they have done. And so on. And this is the biggest tragedy of the Jewish nation. Because once we go into the land, okay, the book of Joshua starts. All those wars take place. The land is conquered. We are settling there. And then we start playing harlots with those foreign gods. And guess what happens to this angel? He is not in the story. The cloud is not there. He is, the nation doesn't see him anymore. There was a couple of times where there was a reference to him with Gideon and Samson, but it's, it's, um, it's an individual encounter. The nation does not see him anymore. What God is saying here in Deuteronomy, he proclaims a punishment over the nation. And in our words today, he says, I'm going to hide the true identity of their Messiah from them because they chose to break the covenant that I have made with them. And at that moment, when we turn to them, to those gods, he is turning their faces to something else. Isaiah 63. probably makes it as clear as possible. This is a verse that kind of connects some dots. Isaiah 63 is a messianic chapter. It talks about the Messiah, describes him where he's coming from, what he's dressed like. And it says in verse nine, that in all, their, in all our affliction, meaning he was afflicted and the angel of his Now we know it's faces, Malachapanim, um, saved them. So he is the savior. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He's the redeemer. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old, but they rebelled. Now we have this word again. Now the translator for some reason chose that. But the root is this one. So we did, we provoked, we became bitter towards him, and we rebelled against this Savior and Redeemer. Not only that, we grieved his Holy Spirit. So what happened? He turned against, he turned himself against us as an enemy and fought against us. And here you have the history of Israel and the church in a nutshell. So much persecution in his name. And if you ask any average Israeli today, who is the biggest enemy of your nation throughout history, who do you think they would say? The church and Jesus, Yeshua. They don't even call him Yeshua because of everything that happened to us in his name. Islam is a modern enemy. Yeshua is our worst. That's a prophecy being fulfilled. That doesn't justify what the church did, of course. But that's a prophecy being fulfilled. How does hidden faces look like? Isaiah 6 tells it. I won't go there now. But you see and you don't get it. You hear and you don't understand. Your heart is covered with fat. 
We walk the places you walk when you visit Israel. You get excited, we're clueless. He walked on earth for 33 years. He walked on earth among us. He performed miracles, so many miracles. Nobody else did it before. Resurrection, or maybe Elijah and, and Elisha, you know, but resurrection from the dead, opening the eyes of the blind. What do the Jews ask him at the end of the day? Show us a sign. But then you have a Roman centurion or a Phoenician woman, they don't even ask for signs. They, they, they even say you don't have to come to our home. They get it. A Samaritan woman, they get it. They're, because he, his faces, his identity as the Messiah, as a messenger of God, even if they don't know the scriptures, was not hidden from them. Because you see what happened is when God turned his back, or re more accurately, when we turned our back and stopped looking at this angel, he revealed it to the Gentile world. Until when? When Isaiah realizes what God is asking him to do in chapter 6, he cries, until when, God? Until when you will, you will blind their eyes and make their ears deaf? And God gives him a long timeline with a lot of misery and desolation and, and destruction to the nation. And when you look through the Bible and you, you're waiting to see when will the faces be revealed again, that was shocking to me to find out eventually that it's in Ezekiel 39. And Ezekiel 39 is the last war. It's Gog and Magog. God still did not reveal the full identity of Yeshua when he walked on earth. This was a big turn in that movement of the bowl turning around. That was a major shift, which is why Jews started looking at him again. But very few, very few, three years he performs all these miracles. How many Jews at the end wait for him at the upper room? Do you remember? 120, that's it. I mean, I'm thinking about if I would do what he does, th three years of pouring your life, day and night, and that's all from the multitudes that witnessed you. These are the only people waiting for your promise because they believe that that's quite discouraging, to say the least. But that's the number that had the faith to really wait. And even they were, you know, going back and forth. Um, um, Only at the very end, Ezekiel 39, um, I, I, I don't, I want to save time, so I'm not going to read it now. Yeah? Okay. Ezekiel 39. Because I still want to go to the book of Ruth and touch that. Ezekiel 39, verse... Um, I'll read from 21. It's just so powerful, this portion. I will set my glory among the nations. This is at the end of the war, at the, in the midst of the war. All the nations shall see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord, their God, from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. 
because they were unfaithful to me. Therefore, I hid my faces from them. I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they, they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my faces from them. So again, God, in a few sentences, describes the entire spiritual history of Israel. 25, therefore thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob. And we know that this has started about 150 years ago, that God had started restoring our, our, our people against all odds from the four corners of the earth. And have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name after they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, when they dwelt safety, safely in their own land and no one made them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, which is happening as the body of Messiah in Israel starts hallowing and sanctifying God's name and calling on the name of Yeshua. And today more and more people know that you're not talking about this cursed name that we used to use anymore. They say Yeshua, even if they don't believe in him because there are more and more believers using that name. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. Are we there? Not yet. Okay, so we are here as far as the history timeline goes. And I will not hide my faces from them anymore, for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God, I cannot wait for that to happen. But as that would happen, we will weep bitterly. A bitter cry like Zechariah 12, I think, describes. Because we will realize who it is that we have pierced. That, that firstborn son that we have pierced is the angel of God's faces. He is the Jewish Messiah. And that bitter cry that, that Zechariah described, again, is this word. This, it's a key word. It's a keyword that, 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 that describes a rebellion, but also our process of sobering up. So God is restoring the widow Israel first to her land. First he gives her a home and a roof and provision. But spiritually and mentally, we really don't think we have anybody to lean on. We feel very isolated and very lonely. We used to think America is our friend, but you know, with the previous regime and because of things happening, we kind of, I don't think that's a safe spot for us anymore. And I guess it's God because he wants us to rely on him. That's his way to push us back into his own arms. Until then, until God will reveal his true faces, the Jewish face of the Jewish Messiah to his people, what is happening until then? And this is where you come into the picture. And in order to explain you that, I want to use shortly the book of Ruth and Naomi. Because I do believe that we live now in the second fulfillment of that. Um, it's a very interesting book. First of all, it's very easy to read. It's short. It's just a story. There's no deep 
big, long, unclear words there. But um, because what we have there is a widow coming back home from diaspora. And I think Naomi represents Israel that is coming back home to the house of bread. Every name in that story has a meaning. And if you understand that, it, it advances the, 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 the narrative. So Naomi means pleasant. Beit Lechem means the house of bread. And she comes back to the house of bread with Ruth, her friend. Ruth means friendship. Um, when they, the neighbors see her coming, they say, is this Naomi? Meaning, is this the pleasant lady? Do you remember what she tells them? Don't call me Naomi, call me. Call me this. I am a rebellion, rebellious woman. I am bitter, I'm a provocator. Listen, this is, as of now, our identity as a nation. Isn't that sad? Forget covenants, forget being children of God. We are bitter, and we kind of hold on to it. Why do I think she's bitter? Because, um, I mean, she says she's bitter, but why do I think there is rebellion and provocativeness? Provocative in her? Provocation, okay. Naomi, to begin with, goes to, with her husband, they go to Moab because there was drought, there was no food in Bethlehem. In the house of bread, there was no bread. And it's okay, I mean, you need to provide for your family. But Moab and Ammon were two nations that God forbade Israel to go to and mingle with. There were droughts prior to them. Abraham, Jacob, they go to Egypt. You could go to Egypt. When they choose to go to Moab, they go against God's clear directions. Another reason is the names they give to their children. In a culture that understands the meaning of names, that name sets your identity and your destiny, you don't call one son disease and the other son extermination. And that, these are the names they gave their kids. And in a story like that, where every name has a deep meaning, there was a message of, in, in those names alone. And so they were very provocative. Why play, really? Okay, you go to Moab, but why play with the names of your kids? Because every time you call them to dinner, you pronounce death and extermination over them, okay? Now we have a redeemer in this story, okay? Boaz. What is interesting is that nowhere throughout the story has a direct communication with the Jewish widow. When he wants to love on her, who does he use? The Gentile. When she wants anything from him, who does she send? The Gentile. This is where we are at with God right now. Yeah, there is a God. There's a redeemer in the story, probably. But we don't want any business with him. You remember how Tuvia, the, the, the fiddler, says, choose another nation, please. Thank you for being a chosen nation. Do you mind choosing another nation? In a way, this is what she's saying, maybe. I mean, I'm reading into the text, so I'm not sure. But why would, wouldn't she approach him directly? He's a relative. She came back after so many years in diaspora. You know what? She didn't even need him. She could go to the gate 
and appeal to the leaders there, and they would have to take care of her case and restore her legacy and the name of the family. So I don't know what broke in Naomi not to even desire that or think about it. Maybe she didn't want to have anything with men in authority. I don't know. I'm reading into the text. It, that, it, I mean, it's interesting, but it doesn't really matter. The fact is that she needed someone to do that, and it was a Gentile who had that faithfulness and no fear of bars. She did it. Ruth went day and night, sometimes even setting herself in, in dangerous situations, like going to the threshing floor in the middle of the night on her behalf because she loved her so much. Ruth didn't tell Naomi what she thinks Naomi needs. Naomi told her how to behave in a Jewish. I don't think Ruth knew you could glean in the fields because this was a provision made in the Jewish law. I don't think the church would have known how to approach the Redeemer. If not, the Jews would have kept throughout centuries the word of God. So it is the rebellion of Ruth and Naomi, of Naomi, sorry, Naomi and Elimelech, her, their family, but it's her that survived, that brings them outside of Israel and outside of God's will, but that's the only reason Ruth can join the family. Otherwise, Ruth had no right to come back to Bethlehem. It's our rebellion that takes us out of God's will and brings us to exile. But unless it was, unless we rebelled and provoked God and were so bitter towards him, he wouldn't turn his faces or his back to us and his faces to you. And for some reason in God's story, it is either or as of now. We all look forward to that day when one new man, both Gentiles and Jews, will see who he is clearly. But I think for centuries, the Jewishness of the Messiah was also hidden from the church. Okay? If, if Jews wanted to follow him, they were required to assimilate. So it was like, almost like Ruth saying to Naomi, yeah, you can join my God. My God, okay, you can have my God too, but become a Ruth. For centuries, this is what the church told Naomi. Um, it's time for Naomi to stand on her own, but, she, but there is still work for Ruth to do on her behalf. And Ruth is not supposed to become a Naomi for us to find who the Redeemer is. So watch from that. We need you. What we need from you is to see your relationship with the Redeemer because that is what softens the heart of Naomi. And one day, she just stands up and says, okay, do ABC. Because she, is, she realizes what can be done. So don't try to become a Naomi in order to bring this. You, you will damage this story. And also, don't look at us as if we were boys. We're not to be worshipped. We are a broken, bitter nation with a lot of precious, precious, gifts, but we need to see what you have with your Redeemer. For, we do, do you see what I'm saying? For us to wake up. This is what happened to me in South Africa. I wondered what they had. 
this living relationship with a God that I didn't even care about before I walked into the room. And I want to warn you uh, from another phenomenon that I see so often, especially among those who love Israel. We have one more widow in the story. What is her name? Hmm? And the, uh, another widow, Orpa. Orpa means the back of your neck, the back of your, your back. And there are people who love Israel enough to walk a certain distance with her. But then they either get tired of us, because you don't see the fruit in Israel parallel to the level of your investment of any resources, whether it's prayer, attention, visits, love, finances. Because see, he's still hidden from us. And then they get tired of us, and they go back to their comfort zone, but they walk out of the story too. So watch from that. As God is revealing his faces more and more, the Jewish face of the Messiah to his people, the time of the Gentiles is coming to an end. And I travel places and I see how Europe is shutting down to the gospel. I'm not even talking about understanding Israel. Because something there is coming full circle. And we see, I think what happened with the gospel, it went from Judea, Samaria, north, west, west, always west. Always west. There were a couple of times Paul even wanted to go to eastern spot. The Holy Spirit didn't let him. West, 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 America, and then Australia and New Zealand and the far islands that are being revived now. And then the far east, there's big revivals in China and Korea and the Middle East and eventually Israel. And this is where we're at. This is where we're at. So for you to sit here, that means you understand that he is a Jewish Messiah. That's a given thing in this group. I don't even have to go into that. But there's more to the story. And when you get fascinated with him, remember there is a widow who still does not see what you see. And what she needs is not religious words. She is hungry for a relationship with a husband that she considers to be her biggest enemy, not the lover of her soul. And I want to invite you to this place in our time. For more information about Beit Abba, log on to our website at tfh.org slash Beit Abba or call our office at 707-455-7790.